The Christian Atheist is also available on YouTube, and you will find other great content, including the literature I frequently refer to, on our Simple Gifts podcast. If you find our content helpful, consider supporting us through PayPal at RomansChapter5 at Comcast.net. Welcome to the Christian Atheist, where faith and reason fuse in the Incarnation. Episode 23, Travel Readings. During travels, Jenny and I read C.S. Lewis's Surprised by Joy. It is the account of his early life and conversion from atheism. If you have not read it, I highly recommend it. We are currently posting it on our Simple Gifts podcast if you'd like to listen. Lewis's is strikingly similar to my own return to theism, that which I set down for my listeners in the series entitled The Machinery of the Looking Glass. Here is a paragraph from Lewis's final chapter. The question was no longer to find the one simply true religion among a thousand religions simply false. It was rather, where has religion reached its true maturity? Where, if anywhere, have the hints of all paganism been fulfilled? With the irreligious, I was no longer concerned. Their view of life was henceforth out of court. As against them, the whole mass of those who had worshipped, all who had danced and sung and sacrificed and trembled and adored, were clearly right. But the intellect and the conscience, as well as the orgy and the ritual, must be our guide. There could be no question of going back to primitive, untheologized and unmoralized paganism, The God whom I had at last acknowledged was one and was righteous. Paganism had been only the childhood of religion, or only a prophetic dream. Where was the thing full grown? Or where was the awaking? There were, really, only two answers possible, either in Hinduism or in Christianity. Everything else was either a preparation for or else, in the French sense, a vulgarization of these. Whatever you could find elsewhere, you could find better in one of these. But Hinduism seemed to have two disqualifications. For one thing, it appeared to be not so much a moralized and philosophical maturity of paganism as a mere oil-and-water coexistence of philosophy side-by-side with paganism unpurged the Brahmin meditating in the forest, and, in the village a few miles away, temple prostitution, sati, cruelty, monstrosity. And secondly, there was no such historical claim as in Christianity. I was, by now, too experienced in literary criticism to regard the Gospels as myths. They had not the mythical taste And yet, the very matter which they set down in their artless, historical fashion, those narrow, unattractive Jews, too blind to the mythical wealth of the pagan world around them, was precisely the matter of the great myths. If ever a myth had become fact, had been incarnated, it would be just like this. And nothing else in all literature was just like this. Myths were like it in one way. Histories were like it in another. But nothing 
was simply like it. And no person was like the person it depicted. As real, as recognizable through all that depth of time as Plato's Socrates or Boswell's Johnson, ten times more so than Eckerman's Goethe or Lockhart's Scott, yet also numinous, lit by a light from beyond the world, a god. But if a god, we are no longer polytheists, then not a god, but God. Here, and here only, in all time, the myth must have become fact. The word, flesh. God, man. This is not a religion, nor a philosophy. It is the summing up and actuality of them all. One of the things I have always loved about Lewis is his understanding that God's truth is dispersed throughout human life and practice, across cultures, customs, and time. Goodness and light are from above and stand as evidence of something beyond merely human artifice. Point to a transcendence, a reality on which our merely human understanding must break as upon the shoals of the shore. As I point out in my series on ethics, there is present in our world a path, the way, that stands as an objective signpost to God, an ought that resists our most powerful attempts to overthrow its demands. How we choose to act in light of that evidence is the choice that defines our existence. In A Grief Observed, Lewis considers the nature of images of his recently deceased wife, H. Helen Joy Lewis. Those of you most familiar with the themes of the Christian atheist will find much familiar here. It doesn't matter that all the photographs of H. are bad. It doesn't matter, not much, if my memory of her is imperfect. Images, whether on paper or in the mind, are not important for themselves. Merely links. Take a parallel from an infinitely higher sphere. Tomorrow morning a priest will give me a little round, thin, cold, tasteless wafer. Is it a disadvantage? Is it not in some ways an advantage? That it can't pretend the least resemblance to that with which it unites me. I need Christ not something that resembles him. I want H, not something that is like her. A really good photograph might become in the end a snare, a horror, and an obstacle. Images, I must suppose, have their use or they would not have been so popular. It makes little difference whether they are pictures and statues outside the mind or imaginative constructions within it. To me, however, their danger is more obvious. Images of the holy easily become holy images. Sacrosanct. My idea of God is not a divine idea. It has to be shattered time after time. He shatters it himself. 
He is the great iconoclast. Could we not almost say that this shattering is one of the marks of his presence? The Incarnation is the supreme example. It leaves all previous ideas of the Messiah in ruins. And most are offended by the iconoclasm. And blessed are those who are not. But the same thing happens in our private prayers. All reality is iconoclastic. The earthly beloved, even in this life, incessantly triumphs over your mere idea of her. And you want her to. You want her, with all her resistances, all her faults, all her unexpectedness. That is, in her foursquare and independent reality. And this, not any image or memory, is what we are to love still after she is dead. But this is not now imaginable. In that respect, H, and all the dead are like God. In that respect, loving her has become, in its measure, like loving him. In both cases, I must stretch out the arms and hands of love. Its eyes cannot here be used. To the reality, through, across, all the changeful phantasmagoria of my thoughts, passions, and imaginings. I mustn't sit down content with the phantasmagoria itself and worship that for him, or love that for her. Not my idea of God, but God. Not my idea of H, but H. Yes, and also not my idea of my neighbor, but my neighbor. For don't we often make this mistake as regards people who are still alive, who are with us in the same room, talking and acting not to the man himself, but to the picture, almost the precis we've made of him in our minds? And he has to depart from it pretty widely before we even notice the fact. In real life, that's one way it differs from novels. His words and acts are, if we observe closely, hardly ever quite in character. That is, in what we call his character. There's always a card in his hand we didn't know about. My reason for assuming that I do this to other people is the fact that so often I find them obviously doing it to me. We all think we've got one another taped. And all this time I may, once more, be building with cards. And if I am, he will once more knock the building flat. He will knock it down as often as proves necessary. Unless I have to be finally given up as hopeless and left building pasteboard palaces in hell forever, free among the dead. Am I, for instance, just sidling back to God because I know that if there's any road to H, it runs through him? But then, of course, I know perfectly well that he can't be used as a road. If you're approaching him not as the goal, but as a road, not as the end, but as a means, you're not really approaching him at all. That's what was really wrong with all those popular pictures of happy reunions on the further shore. Not the simple-minded and very earthly images, but the fact that they make an end of what we can get only as a byproduct of the true end. Lord, 
Are these your real terms? Can I meet H again only if I learn to love you so much that I don't care whether I meet her or not? Consider, Lord, how it looks to us. What would anyone think of me if I said to the boys, no toffee now? But when you've grown up and don't really want toffee, you shall have as much of it as you choose. If I knew that to be eternally divided from H and eternally forgotten by her would add a greater joy and splendor to her being, of course I'd say, fire ahead. Just as if, on earth, I could have cured her cancer by never seeing her again, I'd have arranged never to see her again. I'd have had to. Any decent person would. But that's quite different. That's not the situation I'm in. When I lay these questions before God, I get no answer, but a rather special sort of no answer. It is not the locked door. It is more like a silent, certainly not uncompassionate, gaze. As though he shook his head, not in refusal, but waving the question. Like, peace child, you don't understand. Can a mortal ask questions which God finds unanswerable? Quite easily, I should think. All nonsense questions are unanswerable. How many hours are there in a mile? Is yellow square or round? Probably half the questions we ask, half our great theological and metaphysical problems, are like that. No one gets us quite so well as C.S. Lewis. When I complete Surprised by Joy on our Simple Gifts podcast, perhaps I will read A Grief Observed. Let me know your thoughts. Next week, I will begin a series of letters to my atheist self, based on the example of Drew, the genetically modified skeptic, one of my favorite atheist YouTubers. I am a Christian with the searching and skeptical mind of an atheist. I don't want to believe anything that isn't true. I know both sides of the looking glass, and I know them with open eyes. I choose Christ's side. I invite you to join me from wherever you stand before the looking glass. That's this week's episode. Thanks for listening, and remember, you can have your religious cake and eat it too. You can have reason, respect for science, a 21st century worldview, and be a Christian.